The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Tonight, as you can see by these beautiful stained glass pieces we have, we are kicking off a new series around the season of Lent called The Heart of It All. And for those of you who aren't as familiar with Lent, this is the 40-day journey leading up to the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. So as the church prepares to rejoice in the resurrection of Christ, we as a community at the Inn want to take time every Tuesday to reflect on who Jesus is, what he accomplished by coming to earth and dying on a cross, and what this means for us. So I'm inviting you into that time tonight, and I'm so thankful to begin this series. First, though, I want to tell you a little bit about myself, for those of you who may not know me. Um, So I am not originally from Seattle. I'm from High Point, North Carolina, which is the furniture capital of the world for anyone who (laughs) is into that. This is my lovely family. Um, This is a very significant photo because, as you can see, my dad is wearing a Tabasco tie. And (laughs) we, like Beyonce, take hot sauce very seriously in my family. Um, I get my soft smile from him, and yeah, and I guess beauty from my mom, and that's my older brother, Max. And so I grew up with this family in High Point, North Carolina for all of my life, moved to Charlottesville, Virginia for college, and that is where I found a brand new home, and this is a picture of my home. It was called the Friend Zone because... <laughs> When we moved in, all 11 of us were single, and as you can see, that DTR porch swing, perfect for the DTR, was used pretty often to friend zone and to be friend zone. It was great. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so that house was a lot of fun. These are my people, and the next slide is another picture of my best friends from college. They are the people that I call when I've had a bad day or when I get good news. These are the people that will stick with me for a lifetime. Um, I love them. We get to carry balloons on graduation day, so we went with sharks. <laughs> it was awesome. And next, I was like, what do these people want to know about me? I don't want to just throw up a slew of baby pictures. So I thought, the foods that I eat, that's very important. Um, So this is what sets me apart from you guys in the Pacific Northwest. These are the foods that I ate in the South. And I'd like to thank you all for your cuisine here because I think it's added years to my life, honestly. (laughs) I mean, look at this. (laughs) I love fried chicken. Anyone who knows me knows that about me. So (laughs) tonight I get to talk to you about some other things that I love, not fried chicken, actually. I have the privilege of talking to you about Jesus and the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. It is crazy, and I can guarantee there's not a morally upstanding individual in the Old Testament. You can search the pages. It's hard to find one. Um, I love it because the stories are confusing and unsettling, but I love that these words, as strange as they are, have been significant to faith communities for thousands of years. And while this text is often complicated, there's something about the mystery of it all that just draws us into the beauty and complexity of God's character. So I hope that tonight I can invite you into a deeper investigation of the Old Testament in which we may view this ancient scripture through the lens of Christ. You may be thinking, okay, well, I've read the Old Testament in parts, and it doesn't really talk about Jesus. And yes, you have a point. 
Um, but tonight I want to look at the people described in the Old Testament, the Israelites, through the lens of Jesus in the Gospels. Our scripture tonight is from Isaiah 53, but before we read, I want to give you a little more context, um, some background on the nation of Israel. So, the Old Testament is a narrative about human failure and God's unconditional love. Early on, we see human beings turning their backs on God. They eat fruit that they're not supposed to eat. They murder people that I'm assuming they weren't supposed to murder. Um, they lie, they cheat, they steal. And when God steps in to make things right with his people, they hide from him. God could choose to wipe out all of humanity with flood and fire time and time again and recreate it all. But what I love about this story is that God goes about restoring his people to himself in a different way. He blesses a family. Abraham is one of my favorite characters in scripture. And if you talk to the other interns and you ask them, like, what's Carly's type in guys? Well, they'll tell you it's the normal guy, like a little scruffy, not really special, just like very average. <laughs> today was like, I mean, you like want a guy who dances really well, but you're not actually going to find one who's going to be like an okay dancer. Well, that is who Abraham was. He, <laughs> in my eyes, a normal guy, um, probably didn't have a ton of goats or sheep or whatever would make him desirable to the average person. He was older in age when God chose him. He didn't have any children, but yet God, we have the same taste in men, chose to build a family with Abraham. And he promises Abraham that he will give him children and that his descendants will be blessed. He will lead them into the promised land. And this promised land is a place of abundance where his people will live harmoniously, where they will thrive as a family, as a community. So much of the Old Testament is based on this narrative, narrative, the promise um, that God will deliver the Israelites. So the Israelites are trying to follow God as he leads them, but they're doing a really terrible job at it. They are driven out of their promised land uh, by a famine. And so they retreat to Egypt, where they are then enslaved for 400 years. But because God has promised to deliver them, he brings them out of slavery. And God knows that they aren't going to listen to the people that he's appointed to lead them, namely Moses, the prophet. So God himself leads them out of slavery in Egypt by parting the Red Sea. And he appears to them in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He draws near to them to lead them into the wilderness where they will be safe. So the Israelites are in the wilderness now. They're wandering around aimlessly for 40 years. They're confused, they're grumbling, they're complaining. They would rather go back to Egypt where they were slaves. But all the while, God is with them even when they complain, even when they're terrible listeners. God continues to bless them just like he promised. He provides for their every need, raining down food from heaven for them to eat and revealing to them laws and codes so that they can function as a community. God wants his people to know him, and he's constantly working in the midst of their suffering and confusion to make this happen. So we pick up tonight in Isaiah 53, which is a letter of prophecy written to the Israelites during Babylonian exile. So after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, 40 years of Exodus, wandering around aimlessly in the wilderness. Finally, the Israelites are settled in Judah, Jerusalem, where they build a temple. They're able to sacrifice to God. They're able to worship together. They're able to live as a sustainable community. But 
Then in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army step in, sweep away all of Jerusalem, destroy the temple, which is the place where God is believed to dwell. His very presence is there. They wipe away all of the things that are important to the Israelites, and they bring them into captivity in Babylon. So just imagine this. Israel is wiped away from the home where they worshipped, where they worked, where they lived with their very families. They became prisoners in a strange place. And Isaiah comes to them with a promise for deliverance, declaring that God is with them and that the end of their captivity is near. As we read the words of the prophet Isaiah, this poem about the suffering servant, imagine that you are an Israelite stuck in a foreign place and that the words of this poem are for you. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away, but who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth." So when we look at the Old Testament scripture from the Jewish perspective, it's easy to interpret that the suffering servant described in the text is the people of Israel. They had no form of majesty that anyone should desire them. They were normal people. They were flawed. They were also very well acquainted with suffering, having undergone many trials. And as they sat in the discomfort and the pain of exile, they considered themselves stricken struck down by God and afflicted. They were despised by other nations and frequently attacked, and they knew all too well the lifestyle of slavery and of exile. I imagine that Israel at times felt like the kid whose parents moved from city to city and put them into new schools, and this kid was bullied and thrown into lockers and teased, and his lunch money was stolen. God promised them that he would lead them into a place of comfort and security, but when they suffered, they resorted to their own devices. This reminds me of one of my favorite Pixar films, last year's Inside Out. And in this movie, the main character, Riley, moves to San Francisco from her home in Minnesota. This movie is all about her emotional process responding to this move. Um, and there's one particular scene in the movie where Riley packs her bags, she steals money from her mom's purse, and she goes to the bus station to catch a bus to Minnesota, like a bunch of buses from San Francisco to Minnesota, I presume. Um, 
But this is the scene following when Riley hops off the bus because she realizes that she's made a terrible mistake and she returns to her family. because Riley admits to her feelings of sadness and loneliness, and she expects her parents to be angry. But her parents' response is not what she expected. They understand her sadness, and they're sad too. They miss the joy that it brought them to see the daughter that they loved doing the things that she loved in the place that they all loved. I think that the nation of Israel probably felt similarly to Riley. They considered themselves stricken by God, afflicted. God's chosen people knew loneliness, confusion, isolation, and insecurity, just like you and me. But God, like Riley's parents, felt the pain of his people. I imagine that God missed those moments when the community was gathering together in Jerusalem and one another's households, or when they were able to worship together. Isaiah's prophecy is significant to the Israelites because in the words of his poem, Isaiah promises his people that God will deliver them and bring them out of suffering and back into his embrace, back into the peace of their homeland. Now I want to invite you into another interpretation of this scripture. And in no way are these interpretations mutually exclusive. In fact, I think when we look at them together, we're able to see a fuller picture of God's unconditional love for his people and his eagerness to draw near to his people. Within the Christian tradition, it is common to look at Isaiah 53 as pointing directly toward the Messiah, uh, the Son of God, who is coming to save God's people, to rescue Israel from suffering. I love the first verse of Isaiah 53 in Eugene Peterson's message translation. It says, Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The Jewish people were familiar with the idea of a Messiah, but who could have guessed 
that God's saving power would look like Jesus Christ. Peterson continues, the servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. I think that because of the way that Renaissance art has depicted Jesus as like this guy with long, beautiful hair and light shining from his pores and a lamb over his shoulders. Let's look at some pictures of Jesus. <laughs> Here we have light shining from his pores. He just like floats around in an orb of light, kind of. Um, next is one of my favorites, children sitting on Jesus as if Jesus is like the holy babysitter. <laughs> I love babysitter Jesus. And where did that dove come from? Um, next, I believe, is a modern-day adaptation to Renaissance Fabio. Oh, hipster Jesus, who probably wouldn't call himself a hipster. But And then the next is my very favorite. This is what I like to call Portland Jesus, <laughs> with a stuffed goat, because that goat can't be real, um, and some pretty awesome tattoos. But I think that because of the way that art has depicted Jesus as this Fabio character, we have, we misunderstood who Jesus actually is. What if God's saving power didn't actually look like what people expected? Jesus was fully God and fully human. Jesus was fully human. I thought that I understood this truth until one time in college, one of my professors said in a, in a lecture, Jesus as a child fell down and scraped his knee just like you and me. What? Is that crazy to you guys? Because I thought that Jesus only bled on the cross and that his body was perfect when he walked around in his light orb and that there's no way that he could have fallen and scraped his knee. While I was preparing the sermon, I could not stop thinking about the fact that Jesus had fingerprints and a blood type and toes I mean, come on. And I don't want to insult Jesus, but people may have even talked about his toes when he left the room like Olivia on The Bachelor. <laughs> Honestly. Jesus went through puberty. He endured the awkward teenage years just like you and me. When Jesus took on the fullness of our humanity, he really did it. He took on our messiness, our awkwardness, our normalness. Nothing in the Bible paints a picture of Jesus as Renaissance Fabio, and I find this reassuring because Jesus didn't trick us into liking him. He could have made himself king, but he didn't. In fact, he was despised by those in power. Just like Abraham and the people of Israel, Jesus was a normal guy. What was attractive about Jesus had nothing to do with his physical appearance or his social status in everything to do with the living God who was dwelling in the body of Jesus and how much that living God wanted to know the people that he came to save. I want you to consider the significance of the God of the universe clothing himself with skin and becoming a normal, breathing, hungry, sleep-deprived human being. In all his power, Probably God could have gone about restoring the nation of Israel to himself in a number of ways. But God so loved his people that he chose to come to earth to be born of a couple of nobodies to live among us. Why did God choose to do this? Why would the creator of the universe choose to submit himself to this form of suffering? Well, this was all part of his plan to rescue us, to bear our transgressions, to face the punishment of our sins so that 
the broken, messed up, stubborn human beings could be restored to right relationship with God. But I think there is more to Jesus' humanity that I don't want us to miss here. God came to earth as a human being so that he could really know us. Our great shepherd wanted to become just like one of his sheep. God desired to experience the slavery, exodus, and exile that Israel knew so well. So he stepped into the captivity of a human body. God did not remain in heaven and observe the suffering of his people at a distance. He cut himself off from the land of the living. He moved into the neighborhood. He felt our sadness, our grief, our loneliness, our homesickness. He knows every part of our suffering. When I was a junior in college, I lived in a house that I will call exile. It wasn't the friend zone. It was not that much fun. Um, I was the youngest in the house, so I was given the basement, which was awful. It was cold. It was dark. It was wet. It literally flooded every time it rained, and I had to squeegee it. Um, and there were spider crickets, and you guys don't even know what those are, I bet, because those probably don't exist here, and they are as terrifying as they sound. My roommates who lived upstairs were a jolly bunch of people. They were always baking but never sharing with us. Um, and most of them were engaged, so the house felt kind of like a Pinterest board, not really like a college home. One of my friends in the house, we were besties. We would take like one of those rubber horse heads and hide it like in the refrigerator or <laughs> the shower so that these girls would freak out when they saw it. We had fun. But all of this is to say that this house did not feel like home. And in that year of my life, I experienced the weight of depression. I remember waking up on Saturday mornings. I was training for a distance race, and I would wake up, put on my running clothes, ready to go, and I would just fall down on my bed, and I was unable to move because I just, I just couldn't. And um, that was the weight of depression to me. And for that year of my life, the only scripture that really meant anything to me was John 11.35, Jesus wept. I needed to know that Jesus felt pain, that the God that I worshipped knew emotional distress. And to be honest, I don't think at that point in my life that I could have believed in or worshipped a God who didn't. In Old Testament scripture, when the Israelites neglect to remember who it is that they believe in or who they worship, God reminds them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God sent incredible plagues among, upon Israel's enemies. He led them out of slavery by a cloud, by a pillar of fire, and he fed them from the sky. God and all God's power could do all of this and more. Yet God chose to humble himself, to become a man, to dwell with us just so that he could be near to us, so that he could really know us. God desires to know you. God desires to know your pain and to sit with you in it. He desires to deliver you from your suffering and to restore you into the joy of his embrace. That is why your creator clothed himself with skin and came to earth as a normal, mortal human being. Jesus came to know the person that he created. I want to give you the opportunity to remember the God who brought you out of slavery by becoming a slave himself. I want you to have the space to cast aside images of Fabio or hipster Jesus and imagine Jesus for yourself. What does he look like? What is his posture towards you? 
If he were to reach out his hand to you, what would it feel like? What is he saying to you tonight? I'm going to pray for us, and you can continue to close your eyes and imagine this Jesus, the Jesus that is before you, the Jesus that is speaking to you. And the band will come up in just a few minutes. God, thank you for loving us unconditionally and in your love, giving us the capacity to love you in return. Thank you for understanding us in all of our humanity. Would you give us new eyes to see you how you want to be seen tonight? It's in Jesus' name we pray.